was actually ironically about to go into a mini exam. It was a, a practical where we were dissecting brains and we had to name the parts during the dissection. And I was in the female locker rooms getting changed, getting my white coat on. I went to the toilet and it was actually whilst I was in the toilet cubicle that I was sat down and I felt pins and needles all down my right hand side. And the next thing I knew, my whole of my right side just slumped. I believe that there was quite a lot of time that went by before I had the scan and they realised that I'd actually had a stroke. And nobody was expecting me to be having something like that. I was a very fit young girl with no risk factors or family history. I had to move out from my student digs because obviously I'd, I'd been kicked off the course. So I, I wanted to stay in Cardiff for a bit because I wanted to carry on having some physio. And also, I wasn't ready to go home, you know. I, I thought if I go home, I might get looked after. Uh, but it was a transition period for me. You know, while, while they were still allowing me to have some physiotherapy, so it was quite useful. And then I went home. A friend of mine got in touch with the newspapers to say that I'd done this amazing swim. And so I had a write-up in like the Sunday Times and a few other kind of journals and papers and things. And they asked if I would go and be interviewed by um, on Where There's Life, a programme, Miriam Stoppard. But I was one of many people there. But that was me instigating it all, me saying, you know what, I'm going to do something positive. I think that was my way of helping myself, was to feel useful to others, if that makes sense. Hello, this is Stroke Stories. I'm Mark Goodyear. In the UK, there are about 32,000 stroke-related deaths every year. More first-time strokes are happening at an earlier age compared to a decade ago. For example, for males, the average used to be 71, it's now 68. For females, it's dropped from 75 to 73. This is between 2007 and 2016. But deaths relating to stroke have declined by almost half in the last 15 years. It's down to better prevention and using more advanced treatments much earlier. If you've had a stroke, or somebody close to you has, Stroke Stories is for you. We started the podcast to seek out and to hear from stroke survivors. Over the next two episodes, we'll hear the story of Satinder Sangera, a former GP who suffered a stroke in 1986 at the age of 20. I was a second-year medical student at uh, Cardiff University. Life was hectic. I was burning the candle at both ends. Therefore, it was also very good. I was a county runner, I was um, a member of the university athletic squad, middle distance running, and I was also played tennis for, for the college. I used to ride my bike everywhere. I used to even ride it to nightclubs and park it to a lamppost, get the bouncer to keep an eye on it, and then cycle back at like three, four in the morning, stay up with my mates. And usually realise when the milkman arrived that, oh my God, you know, you've got nine o'clock lectures. I was actually, ironically, about to go into a mini exam. It was a, a practical where we were dissecting brains and we had to name the parts during the dissection. And I was in the female locker rooms getting changed, getting my white coat on. I went to the toilet and 
it was actually whilst I was in the toilet cubicle that I was sat down and I felt pins and needles all down my right hand side and the next thing I knew my whole of my right side just slumped and I just fell to one side I just completely slumped I have very little recollection of what happens after that. The next thing I remember would be in an ambulance. I have no idea how I got in the ambulance. I was being violently sick. The ambulance crew, I remember being quite reassuring. But then I passed out and I think I was out for at least a day. I recall that I was taken to initially the most local hospital. They couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with me. I was 20, I was unconscious, so I was then moved to the University College Hospital, which was further afield, and all this obviously caused delays of several hours. I believe that there was quite a lot of time that went by before I had the scan and they realised that I'd actually had a stroke, and nobody was expecting me to be having something like that. I was a very fit young girl with no risk factors or family history. Satindo was in hospital for three and a half months and was given a recovery regime which she found frustrating to stick to. It was supposed to be bed rest with some controlled physio, but I was very naughty. I, I When the consultants came round and told me what had happened and said I'd had a very dense stroke, it affected my left middle cerebral artery, so it's the main vessel that supplies the left hemisphere brain. They said it was a very sort of dense, what they call completed stroke, with motor sensory and speech loss, that my prognosis wasn't great, not in terms of life and death, but in terms of being able, you know, to do anything. So they were really, I think, not expecting too much from me. So the the hospital wanted me to to rest and to have these uh, bursts of of physio and then lastly occupational therapy to sort of reintegrate me in some way back into society. But I had other ideas. I was about to join the women's rugby team as well. So I was thinking, well, I've got training in a few weeks. I've got to get myself sorted. So I used to at night time... um, fall out of bed and crawl up on my left hand side across the floor and I liaised with some of my colleagues medical and dental colleagues that they would piggyback me out of the hospital one or two of them would distract the night staff because it was always very thinly uh, manned at night so it was easy enough to distract the few staff around they sneak me out and then I would go and do my own kind of physio around the park behind the hospital and then invariably I'd be found sort of collapse somewhere in a heap <laughs> you would sort of frozen and then I'd get piggybacked back in and I used to get told off you know in no uncertain times I was told that you know I was making my spasticity worse that I was in, hindering my recovery I disagreed with them I thought well maybe but all I know is that it's damn well making me feel better about myself and right then and there I just needed to feel optimistic I needed to feel like I was still in control of my life and my life didn't involve the things that I was being told so I thought well I'll decide thank you very much and it made me feel better 
it hurt. Blooming hurt. <laughs> you know, it wasn't easy. But when you're a middle distance runner, you kind of used to pain anyway. So it's all relative. <laughs> Despite Satinder's efforts to regain full movement, she was left with a number of physical disabilities. My speech came back. I had some what we call then expressive dysphasia, which is now aphasia. I could wait there. I had no movement and I still have no movement in my foot. And so my right calf is about half the size of my left because of muscle wasting. And my leg was not great. I had a very typical sort of spastic gait, what they used to call it in those days. I had worse function in my right arm. I could get it sort of above my head, but with a lot of difficulty. Very little use in my hand. The occupational therapist was very helpful. You know, they showed me how I could tie my shoelaces one hand, how I could get dressed. I think just little things like putting your bra on, stuff like that, you know. It was all these really practical tasks they really helped with. And I found ways around things. I found that I was pleased I had my own teeth, put it that way, because it's amazing what you can use your teeth for. <laughs> I rue the day that I lose those. So, you know, I, find, I kind of found ways to get around things. You know, I found my own technique. But my function was, was poor. However, there was one consultant who went on to be a professor at Addenbrooke's Neurology who had sort of been in the background noticing my, what he described as bloody-mindedness. And unbeknown to me, he'd been fighting my case with the medical board that I should be considered for re-entry into medicine, into the training. He was a lone voice. Nobody else on the medical board agreed with him. They thought he was being daft. But he said if they allowed him to give me a series of tests, practical and cognitive to assess whether I had the basics to return to medicine, whether, you know, he said if I was a liability when I returned, it would be on his head. He would take responsibility. And because he was very respected in the faculty, they accepted his request. His biggest concern with me wasn't my physical function, albeit it was poor. It was my cognitive function, whether after such a severe stroke, I would have the ability to process information. And of course, the other thing is I had been right-handed, so I'd have to learn to write in my left hand, as well as being able to speak properly. But everything, processing things, doing things quickly, but also being, you know, in medicine, even, you know, they don't, they don't give you special dispensation in terms of some of the practical tasks you have to do as well. So, you know, I would have to be able to find a way of doing all those intricate tasks that all other doctors have to do in training and so I did and actually I learned to swim so when I was discharged I went to stay at YMCA which was a difficult experience because that was one of my first forays back into society and people were very cruel because you know I was young but people wouldn't necessarily know what was wrong with me they just thought I was a little bit spazzy to be honest I used to get called spastic packy quite a lot things like that so it was a, a time for you know being toughened up shall we say but I was from Luton so I could hold my own <laughs> but deep down it's having an effect on you it has a lasting effect on you and especially it's not even so bad when it's strangers it's when it's people you know like your peers um, who treat you differently or shun you or try and compare you to how you were before. I had to move out from my student digs because obviously I'd, I'd been kicked off the course. So 
I, I wanted to stay in Cardiff for a bit because I wanted to carry on having some physio. And also, I wasn't ready to go home, you know. I, I thought if I go home, I might get looked after. Uh, but it was a transition period for me, you know, while, while they were still allowing me to have some physiotherapy. So it was quite useful. And then I went home. It was when I went home that I then took up swimming as well as, you know, learning to write my left hand and so forth. I would say I was very lucky in that my parents did not mollycoddle me at all. They were fantastic. They, to be honest, they had to put up with a lot of really scary occasions when I was doing daft things, but they took it on the chin. You know, I tried to ride a bike again and I fell off on the road a couple of times and they didn't chastise me or say, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. They they understood, you know, and I was uh, proud of them for not kind of, you know, fussing over me. My dad used to drive after work every day and come into the hospital and massage my legs. <laughs> you know, he made such an effort to come in to see me on a regular basis. I owe a lot to them, actually. And they were the, one of the few positive people to come and visit me. Most people, um, you know, they'd come and they'd say, oh, we know somebody this happened to and then they died or something horrible happened to them. It was so negative, you know. So it was actually quite nice seeing them because they were actually positive. They used to bring me nice food as well. Satinder suffered a serious stroke at a young age at a time when there was little known about stroke in young people and she took it upon herself to recover as best she could. Still to come on Stroke Stories, Satinder reveals the battles she faced with the lack of understanding around stroke at the time. They didn't have any sympathy at all. It was all, but I thought only old people get that. So as a result, I changed what I said. I would tell people that I'd had a brain hemorrhage. And I noticed when I told people I had a brain hemorrhage, their reaction was very different. They were much more sympathetic to when I said I had a stroke because stroke then was associated with old age and death. It's the things that your granny had. And she talks about her determination to keep fighting. I didn't want the medical faculty to think I was weak. So I didn't seek help and I wasn't ever offered help by anybody. But I did get in touch with the Chest, Heart and Stroke Association which had a branch in Cardiff. And that was suggested by, by an occupational therapist who was actually really helpful. I would say she was the one person who I used to be able to talk to. The reason I contacted them was because I wanted to raise money for them. About a year and a half after my stroke, I, I swam 100 lengths of a 30 metre pool non-stop freestyle. Let's hear how Satander's stroke affected her relationship with friends and colleagues. It was a very lonely time. I, was very socially isolated. The thing is, before the stroke, I was a real party animal. I was very popular. I had lots of friends. And I was also, you know, I kind of had the world at my feet, really. You know, uh, I had a boyfriend. He dumped me over the phone when I was still in hospital. <laughs> Said he couldn't cope. I thought, okay, that was nice. And my close friends, male and female, were, were they're okay, but they kind of gradually kind of drifted off and... And, and they'd say sort of hurtful things like, oh, you can't dance like you used to and things like that. And I thought, and I'd go to events, but I could see that people were struggling to talk to me. So, you know, university is like a bubble. When you're out of the bubble, you kind of disappear. You know, you become invisible. That's the problem. So, And obviously going back home, well, nobody, when you're 20, nobody wants to go back home <laughs> and live with their parents. I, I do remember celebrating my 21st birthday, sat on the, my mum and dad's bed, 
bawling my eyes out. <laughs> but that was probably the only time I really cried, actually. I never allowed myself to cry otherwise. Maybe I should probably should have, but I didn't. I remember, you know, when I would be traveling anywhere or if I was negotiating stairs or just walking, because I was slow and because I had to grab onto a rail if there was anything that involved a slope, people would like uh, scowl at me because they thought, what's this young person doing hogging the handrail or slowing us up? You know, we're busy, you know, we haven't got time to wait to get past you. You notice a lot more hostility around you. You didn't attract as many smiles as before you had your stroke. Not as many, no positive comments. You know, you didn't get any flirty looks from lads like you'd get before. <laughs> you know, literally everything changes, you know. And plus, of course, the thing that gets you out of bed normally in the morning is that you have dreams and aspirations and things to do and places to go. I mean, I did, but it was all around sort of recovery and re rehabilitation. But at least I had that, you know. So I was luckier than most in that at least that consultant had given me a, a glimmer of hope by saying, look, you know, get yourself in shape, come back and see me. Let's see if we can get you back on the course. So I had something to work towards, you know. So that kind of helped to, to keep my mind balanced, I suppose, in the light of all these other unpleasant things going on around me socially I was too busy walking to the blooming swimming pool swimming my 50 lengths that I made myself do that would take me hours and hours and then sort of walking back and doing my physio trying to get my right hand to open bottles and things because that was what the consultant one of the things he wanted me to do to be able to grip a bottle with one hand and open it with the other getting my speech better you know reading and trying to focus, concentrate. So it was actually those few months I was at home, was a, it was a good time for me to really focus on recovery. But there was no physio. It was all my own sort of work. Satinder says there were no aftercare services offered to help her recover. I think they probably, they went beyond what they would offer normally to people when I was in Cardiff because I was a student at the university, perhaps because I was young as well. And, you know, I think really the only reason I had so much physio was because they kept me in for a period of time uh, such a long time otherwise I probably would have had nothing after six to eight weeks and to be honest in those days they by their own mission the physio said their job was to just to get people's basic function to improve so to make sure they can sit unaided you know so you've got trunk stability uh, to make sure your shoulder's reasonably stable and that your leg is reasonably stable, that you can weight bear on it. They were just there to get you sort of moving a bit so that you could, you know, make yourself a cup of tea, get yourself dressed, walk, if you, if possible. And then after that, really, by their own admission, they couldn't do much. So I um, heard about um, Mary Lynch, the bow bath instructor in London, and I got permission to go with a, a physio chaperone to see her a few times while I was still in Cardiff. And she was brilliant. She was really good. I used to go and see her and she would play with my limbs like they were putty. And I would come out of there thinking I could do cartwheels. And she was the only person who had a positive attitude. So when I said, I'm going to learn to ride a bike again or I want to run again, she goes, well, go for it. Do it. What's the worst that can happen? You'll fall over. And I liked that. I liked that attitude of hers. Medical understanding was pretty pants. I did get back onto the course and 
I probably would say the worst prejudice I received was actually from medics. They were very hostile towards me. They told me I was a token gesture. They were embarrassed by me. The sense I got, the very strong sense I got, not just from medics, but from society at whole, was that, you know, I was a, a freak. It's like, what was, I, what was I doing having a stroke so young? So when I would tell people, you know, they would, if, if people asked what's wrong with you and I'd said, you know, I'd had a stroke, they would recoil in horror as though I'd had some sort of really infectious disease or something, you know. Um, they really, really did recoil and they didn't have any sympathy at all. It was all, but I thought only old people get that. So as a result, I changed what I said. I would tell people that I'd had a brain hemorrhage. And I noticed when I told people I had a brain hemorrhage, their reaction was very different. They were much more sympathetic to when I said I had a stroke because stroke then was associated with old age and death. It's the things that your granny had. It wasn't something that a young 20-year-old person had. And it was the same when I was returned to medicine. You know, you've got to remember that I was surrounded by young, fit, perfect people, you know, who are very intelligent, very healthy. They've got confidence. They're going places. And then you've got me in the middle of all that, representing everything that's not to do with any of that, you know. And I was brown and I was female. <laughs> so I was kind of like ticking all the bad boxes there. So I, I just sort of really sensed that I was making people feel awkward by my existence. I mean, I was an aviver and there was, a, as well as the, the professor who was asking me the questions, they had an external examiner and he turned to the external examiner and said, I was having problems answering the question. And he turned to the, the, the other chap and said, you know, this girl had a stroke. She had expressive dysphagia. And then he paused and he said, as you can see, she hasn't recovered. I used to get that all the time. You know, it was, it, was, it was actually, looking back, it was quite shocking. But at that time, it was just normal. That's how it was. That was normal. And I would felt embarrassed to tell people I'd had a stroke. Up until very recently, that's, that's lived with me because of how it was perceived then. Here, Satinder explains how she continued to find ways to push herself. I didn't want the medical faculty to think I was weak. So I didn't seek help and I wasn't ever offered help by anybody but I did get in touch with the Chest Heart and Stroke Association which had a branch in Cardiff and that was suggested by my occupational therapist who was actually really helpful I would say she was the one person who I used to be able to talk to the reason I contacted them was because I wanted to raise money for them about a year and a half after my stroke I I swam 100 lengths of a 30 meter pool non-stop freestyle and I raised at that time the equivalent of £2,000, which was a lot of money then. So I did that, but it was more as a kind of ambassador to show the positive side of stroke. Rather than me going to look for help, it was me saying, look, I, I want to help other people through my experiences. A friend of mine got in touch with the newspapers to say that I'd done this amazing swim and so I had a write-up in like the Sunday Times and a few other kind of journals and papers and things and they asked if I would go and be interviewed by um, on Where There's Life, a programme, Miriam Stoppard, 
but I was one of many people there. But that was me instigating it all, me saying, you know what, I'm going to do something positive. I think that was my way of helping myself, was to feel useful to others, if that makes sense. Although Satinder was surrounded by medical professionals, she found herself very much alone after her stroke and ended up managing her own recovery. Make sure you listen to episode 33 to hear the second part of her extraordinary story. If you're listening to this podcast because you've had a stroke or someone close to you has and you'd like to learn more, search online for the Stroke Association. For a dedicated webpage, search NHS Strokes. And if you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe and rate and comment because that will help us spread the word. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening.